Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, welcome. Uh, we're doing a one-on-one interview today. We've been doing a bunch of these lately, and they're a lot of fun. Um, and I think this is an unusual one and an interesting one because, in fact, first of all, I've long maintained that the press here in Connecticut doesn't cover the judicial branch of the government much at all. Uh, and uh, certainly the Supreme Court uh, isn't covered all that much. Uh, and there's a lot of interesting things going on there. But today, I think what, what you're going to mostly do is get to know. We're calling this Get to Know Your Chief Justice. You're going to get to know your Chief Justice. His name is Richard A. Robinson. He's here in studio with us, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, of Connecticut. And uh, first of all, welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. All How right. are you doing? Um, so I, let's just, I, I think we should start. I want to do a little biography with you. But before we do that, let's maybe just start with the, the day that you got the word. Uh, and we actually have a clip of you talking to a friend of ours, a, very, a young fellow named uh, Ryan Atanasio, who's uh, done stuff with us, too. This is a guy who's maybe Ryan's 16 or 17 now, but he's interviewed everybody in the state of Connecticut, including, <laughs> including you. So uh, here's you and Ryan. I remember sort of hesitating um, when he made the call. Um, I've known the governor for quite a while, uh, actually, when he was the mayor of the city of Stanford. And even before that, when he was a board member of the city of Stanford, and we went to the same high school, so I actually remember seeing him there. But to receive that call, it's almost mind-boggling. This poor kid from the west side, I never thought that I'd, I'd become a judge, let alone a Supreme Court justice. All right, so that's you describing the call from uh, Governor Malloy. It's it's more than that. Like you initially weren't going to answer that phone call because you didn't know what it was. Uh, absolutely, I, I had come home. It was pretty late night of working with, at the Supreme Court, and my wife had dinner um, ready, and we were sitting down in the family room just talking. And the phone rang, and uh, we were in the middle of this chat. Mm-hmm. And so I said, oh, "I'm not going to answer that. It's probably just a robocall." <laughs> and she she looked at me, and my wife has this incredible sixth sense that mm-hmm. saved me so many times that yeah. she said, that, that might be important you to answer that. Mm-hmm. Well, also, at this point, too, I mean, obviously, there had been a very, a very contentious battle over the McDonald nomination, and your name had started coming up. I know this because it came up on my show, uh, and the Republicans who had opposed, uh, some of the Republicans had opposed uh, Justice McDonald, um, were talking about you like you were Earl Warren and Alan Page rolled into one or something. <laughs> um, Lynn Fasano, very excited. So, I mean, it couldn't have been a huge surprise to you that you were getting this call. No, it actually was. Mm. Um, and and actually, because of how my name came up, at least publicly, yeah. that was probably one of the reasons why I thought that um, it would not happen. Mm. Um, I was uh, joking um, with some of your, your people who helped prep me mm-hmm. um, ab- about the Paula Abdul comment. And I, I, I thought that was the funniest thing. Um, n- now that, how did it go? Now that uh, your name has come out of Lynn Fasano's mouth, Paula Abdul stands a better chance of becoming <laughs> Chief Justice. <laughs> that was nice. Did, did I write that or say that? <laughs> I think you wrote it. Okay. And, and my wife didn't show it to me. <laughs> Well, I was wrong. See, I was I couldn't have been more wrong. Yeah, yeah. no, I remember thinking that at the time. Now that you say that, yes, obviously. Straight uh, up. <laughs> yeah, because they were they were certainly they, they had the swords out at that point. But then it turns out there was somebody they can agree on. So um, 
I, I just want to a little talk a little bit more about this Stanford stuff. I mean, we were just doing a little Stanford talk before we went on the air because I know a lot of people from Stanford. But um, so I don't know. Tell me a little bit about growing up, about your family, your household. You know, where'd you grow up? Sure. Um, I, I grew up in Stanford, Connecticut, on the west side. Hmm. Um, my family, my mother is from uh, Orangeburg, South Carolina, and my dad was from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Hmm. And they came up during the great black migration of the late 40s and 50s mm-hmm. um, and end up living in Stanford. My mother actually used to work for the former attorney general of the United States, Homer Cummings. She mm-hmm. was a, a domestic in his house. I often wonder what he would think um, knowing <laughs> that Dorothy's son one day became the chief justice of the state of Connecticut. Um, but a pretty normal uh, childhood. I have two brothers. I'm middle child, mm-hmm. I'm an older brother and a younger brother. And um, actually, a cousin who was raised with us too, yeah. and uh, went through the Stanford public school system, Stevens School, Turner River Junior High, and uh, the best high school in Stanford, West Hill. <laughs> you're going to cause all. See, you, you're trying not to be controversial, and you just said something really controversial by Stanford standards. But uh, it's truth, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> all right, uh, please, Ripawam, Ripawam, and Stanford High grads, contact the Chief Justice's <laughs> office. We don't, I don't want any part of this. I know, I know how this can get. So. Um, uh, and and I, you alluded to that in in the clip. So maybe not a family with a tremendous amount of resources. Maybe not a lock that you know everybody's going to get to go to college. Um, yes, I, I was one of the my aunt Beulah actually was the oldest of uh, the eleven children. Mm-hmm. Um, she was the first one of us to go to college, um, but it was rare for anybody in my family to go to college. And mm-hmm. so when it was my turn, um, you know, um, it was interesting. Uh, Interesting journey, and my mm-hmm. parents supported it one hundred percent. They were just incredible. I think I remember something about you driving a bus at one point. Yeah, I drove. Um, yeah, I started out at the uh, UConn Stanford branch, which mm-hmm. is on Schofield Town Road, and I made extra money by driving school buses. So when I got up to stores, I started driving the the Jimmies, the drive around the students and take them to various places on campus. Mm-hmm. And I, I drove those. Um, uh, I think uh, you know this obviously is historic here in Connecticut. You are our first African American uh, Chief Justice. Um, did the history of that, did the momentousness of that sink in right away, or did it take a while? Um, initially, I thought it had sank in, but it wasn't until actually fairly recently that I'm really beginning to understand the impact of it. Um, we often give tours of the Supreme Court, and there was a class of students um, there a couple of weeks ago. And uh, the people from External Affairs, Melissa and Rhonda, asked me to come down and meet the class. And I try to do that whenever I can. Uh, this particular class of students were a lot of African-Americans, um, probably teens and preteens. Mm-hmm. Um, so I go down there and I walk into the room and Melissa Farley says, this is our chief justice. And you would have think that President Obama walked into the room. Um, they were excited to the point where their, their mouths were agape. Mm-hmm. Um, I then talked to them for uh, quite a few minutes, and um, I was telling them how the chief justice portrait goes up after you're retired. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, my picture will eventually be up on the left side, the first picture there. And one of the young women said to me, I want to be here. I want to see that. Um, Mm. And the excitement was just incredible. Um, When you were a kid growing up, um, I don't know. I mean, obviously, Chief Justice probably wasn't something you were thinking about. But I don't know. Were you watching 
sort of not the show Law and Order. It's way too early for that. But sort hey, of hey. shows like that. <laughs> well, you're you're a little bit younger than me, but you're not that much younger than me. Um, so, uh, but were you watching that kind of show? Were you kind of starting to think about sort of justice and all that kind of stuff? Go right into the mic here too, because we don't yeah. want to lose your sound. Well, I I've always uh, been interested in in justice and fairness, not necessarily formally the courts, mm-hmm. but I was always challenging things from the time I was a child, and um, it, I told the story uh, quite a few times that when I was young, my mother would always remind me of Emmett Till. And mm-hmm. She wouldn't tell me everything that happened to him, but mm-hmm. she said, you know, uh, especially when we were down in her hometown, in my, my dad's hometown, you got to be careful. You, you mm-hmm. can't be like you are. You have to know your place because that can get you killed. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but I couldn't stop myself. I would still speak out. Mm-hmm. And so um, they basically would have other family members with me to make sure that I didn't go uh, too far afield. You know, as long as you bring that up here, let's talk about that. I was going to save that for later, but let's talk about this because this is something that you have spoken about. Um, you describe what it's like for you, a justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court, maybe not quite chief justice at this point, to walk into a store. You say you walk down the center aisle of a store, so you're not – yeah. I, I do things that um, I think probably if you haven't lived the black experience mm-hmm. – um, you may not even understand. But mm-hmm. yes, when I go into a department store, I immediately think all the cameras are on me. Mm-hmm. Um, I walk down the aisle and I don't walk near the merchandise unless I have to be near it. Mm-hmm. If I pick up something to purchase, I'll pick it up and make it very obvious that I put it down. Yeah. Um, and, and I can tell you from my experience in talking to my friends and mm-hmm. uh, you know, neighbors and people like that, Black males tend to always do that. Yeah, you told an amazing story in a speech that you gave uh, about being in New Orleans with, I think, white friends, and you were in a store that sold uh, stuff made out of cork, I think. Yes. Mm-hmm. And when the, your friend was looking at a wallet. You want to quickly tell that story? Yes, uh, David Prouse, uh, yeah. wonderful friends of ours. Uh, we were in this store that specialized in things made of cork hats, wallets, and things like that. And so David was interested in, in buying this wallet. And so he picked it up and he was handling it. And so I'm kind of watching all this. He then takes his wallet out and puts the cork wallet in his pocket to see if it'll fit. Mm. And I was absolutely horrified. It's like we are going to jail (laughs) right now. No, this white people get to do stuff like that all the time. Um, (laughs) I'm not not going there. (laughs) No, I went there. But no, but, you know, the the shock that you registered, I think, is it it speaks volumes, you know, because, yes, you would not think about trying a wallet on, so to speak, by putting it in your pocket if you Never. hadn't bought it yet because it just that's just, you know. Never. Not yeah. even in the store after I bought it. I, right. I would have to leave the store right. before I did something like that. I mean, you told a story in the same speech about like going in to buy some tea torches on your way to go camping and one of them was broken and they said, well, just pick up another one on your way out. And you did and you got grabbed, right? Yes, absolutely. And uh, the two employees hadn't communicated and mm-hmm. one grabbed me and accused me of shoplifting. Um, of course, the employee who told me to walk out it was horrified. Um, but for me, it was like this is just another confirmation of me being correct on uh, making sure that I protected myself as adequately as I could. Um, and I think that sort of affects like how you bring up kids. Um, I brought up a son of color, and you know, so you have the thing on the refrigerator about keeping your hands in sight when you talk to the police. And it's like a kind of whole set of conversations that other people don't know about. Right. Um, even as uh, when I was counsel for the NAACP and we would go and tell people what to do during police stops, things like uh, turn the, if it's nighttime, turn your dome light on. 
uh, roll the windows down, keep your hands at 10 and 2. Mm-hmm. If you're going to make a move, let the officer know you're going to make that move. If your registration is in the glove compartment, tell them that's where it is. Mm-hmm. If you're going to reach for your wallet, tell them you're going to reach for your wallet. A more relaxed police officer is in everybody's best interest. And so I, I actually would probably suggest that everybody do that. True. So, uh, you know, it's when you're a jurist, uh, on the one hand, you know, you can't legislate from the bench and all that kind of stuff. On the other hand, you have a lived experience that you bring to your assessment of any set of facts. You bring both the law and what seems true to you. I mean, I, I would imagine that all of the foregoing is kind of important in terms of whatever perspective you might bring to certain cases. Oh, I agree with that. Uh, and that's why I, I fully agree with diversity on the bench. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you need a bench that looks like and feels like the, the public at large because we have some experiences, shared experience. We have mm-hmm. other experiences that aren't. Um, one of the things I love about my court is that when we, um, after we hear oral argument, we go back and we conference and things like that we can talk about. Sometimes it's relevant, sometimes it's not, but we do talk about it. So, um, uh, as you know, because you know my comments about you, um, or maybe your wife didn't tell you these, I don't don't know, (laughs) but I happen to know that you are an uh, adept, apparently not as adept as your wife, but adept uh, at the martial arts. Uh, You're what, a third degree black belt? I'm a fourth degree master belt. uh, Master belt. I don't even know what that means, but it feels, I feel like you could crush me like a grape. So, (laughs) Um, it's uh, the... Every organization is, of course, different. Mm -hmm. Um, With ours, we go through from white belt to black belt. Mm -hmm. Once you receive your first Dan black belt, you can't try for your second degree black belt for at least two years and more training. For your third degree is three years after your second degree. For your fourth degree is four years after your third degree. My wife was my instructor and Mm -hmm. very, very traditional. Um, And so, you know, I would say, hey, look, you know, we're married. Give me a break. And uh, no. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so she's she's a sixth degree, and right. my my uh, youngest son is a fourth degree. Wow! Um, and you, I think you have like occasionally done public demonstrations. We were going to try to make you break uh, a board on the air today. I don't know what that would mean on the radio anyway. But um, <laughs> but you have you have done demonstrations or things like that? Yes, all over the world. Um, yeah. I've, we've done demonstrations in China, in Poland, and. The Netherlands and, mm. and just about everywhere. Right. Um, I assume it makes you able to keep the other six justices in line pretty well. Obviously, they're not going to. You know, no one can keep them in line. <laughs> <laughs> Believe me, I, I, I threaten. Um, it, it doesn't work. All right. So, um, well, we'll come to that. Um, but uh, I'm going to ask you about another area of um, your interests sure. and. Um, I just want to point out, you've already met Scott Breedy, the producer of this show, and you know he's like a bulldog. He's a bulldog, and he's out there digging around with his little paws and finding stuff out. I don't <laughs> want you getting mad at me because I know you you could snap my arm. So um, you play an instrument. I do. Yeah, guitar. I, I play guitar. I've played since I was uh, in high school. Is it possible that you keep a guitar in your office? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is. I'm saying. <laughs> Don't look at me. <laughs> uh, the fact that you know that is highly disturbing. But uh, yes, I, I do have a Fender Stratocaster in my office. Right. Now, I'm going to bring up one more thing. This could be a baseless rumor. And if it is, we'll just move on, okay? Is it possible that you occasionally play Doobie Brothers songs on your guitar? <laughs> <laughs> um, you have a really good source. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, Scott, look, I, Scott Breedy. He went and talked. Talk, uh, who's got the? I told you. I, I, one thing I want to be clear. I do know a lot of judges. I asked no judge about you. Not that they would have told me anything anyway. Um, and if I'd asked Dave Gold, he would just would have talked about himself anyway. He thinks you're the second most interesting <laughs> judge from Stanford. But, um, but all right. Well, so we'll just let the Doobie Brothers thing pass. Okay. You know. But okay. Fair enough. I just wanted to establish that anyway. Um, and and um. There's so many other things that I want to talk to you about, but I, I guess sort of growing up, you so you said you grow up grew up in modest circumstances in Stanford. I mean, was a judge to you when you were growing up? Did you did you ever think, even think about judges and the idea of judges? I mean, you don't really. I mean, even if you're watching a TV show, the judge isn't right. usually all that important, right? Right. I, I I honestly didn't really have a concept of what a judge was. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I you know growing up, eventually learned about Thurgood Marshall and yeah. you know and knew something about his life. But the Connecticut judicial system, I didn't know about that. Um, mm. Even when I became an attorney, I didn't, I didn't think it was possible to become a judge. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until the governor asked me, um, and actually he had to send people to me several times before I finally, I, I told him yes the first time, mm-hmm. but I didn't follow through with the paperwork or anything. It just didn't quite seem real to me. Yeah. And it wasn't until um, I think it was the third time he actually came to me. Huh. And said, uh, you know, we've asked you a couple of times that that's never happened before. Uh, <laughs> do you want to be a judge? So, what was yes. your what was your hesitation? Um, one is that I love being a litigator. Yeah, I I loved working for the city of Stanford. The work was great, and I do get that that adrenaline rush that litigators get. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one was that I I just didn't see it really being able to happen. Mm-hmm. But but it was going to happen. So there was some kind of um, ideation issue for you, right? Yes. You already knew it was going to happen, but somehow or other you couldn't picture it? Yeah. yeah. I, I think that's right. Yeah. That's, that's right. Well, I mean, you must, you must be really having a hard time wrapping your mind around chief justice. <laughs> um, all right. So uh, let's take a quick break here. Uh, we'll come back. Uh, I, I wanna, I've always wanted to know this, sort of like you know how cases get talked out when they're not sitting up there on the bench. He's going to tell us a little bit about that, maybe not everything. A bottle of justice That bottle of justice We're here with Richard Robinson. He is the Chief Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court. We're finding out a little bit more about him. You know, probably the Doobie Brothers thing will be the big story out of that. You know, at least it's not Gilbert and Sullivan. You know, <laughs> think about it. That remember when uh, Rehnquist he had that robe that he wore during the impeachment things because it was from Iolanthe or that was weird. Yes. Yeah. Well, well, a friend of yours suggested I do the same thing. Uh, <laughs> Doug Levine, uh, we'll call him on it. Right. If you took any wardrobe advice from Judge Levine, I would lose respect for you. So. Um, so there's this other thing I'm supposed to ask you about, and I can't quite wrap my mind around it, but you, you have some kind of facility with Chaucerian Middle English? Um, I, I, I do. I was one of those uh, college nerds, um, and for whatever reason, I decided to learn Middle English. Um, yeah. And when I read Chaucer, it had to be in the original form. You, you, you yeah. get more out of it. Can you actually, I mean, I don't know, can you speak in Middle English? In, like, oh, oh, I can. Improvisational? Um, for example, uh, improvisational would probably, right uh, yeah. probably be a little yeah. tough. Probably be a little tough. Or but, read something in front of you. I don't but um, uh, for example, the, the uh, 
Canterbury tale starts out, One that a brill with a shore salt, the drought of March had passed to rot, and bothered of a vans which liquor, of which vertu engendered is the floor. Yeah. So I like when you say you're one of those college nerds. Like a lot of people wind up, you know, <laughs> learning how to do that. Okay, so you're not going to break a board. I feel like you have to do a feat of strength, though, because you're here, because you're a martial arts expert. So I'm going to have you open this jar of, um, these are sun-dried tomatoes from Trader Just be careful. Don't do it, because you're going to get the oil all over yourself. So do it carefully. Oh, look at that. Like, it was nothing. All right, I'm going to let you keep the jar. That, that was uh, 16 years of training to yeah. do that. Those are really good, those are really good sun, sun-dried tomatoes, too. And you didn't have to go to Trader Joe's to get them. People would tear your head off to <laughs> You know what Trader Joe's is like, uh, but they're really good. And I, I sort of know that you like food, too, because it, you described in the speech that Scott and I both watched going to New Orleans, and you talked about the food for like seven minutes. Uh, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, I have this thing about Cajun cooking in uh, beignets. So um, I, I think, you know, to whatever extent that people know about the Supreme Court, they know about the Supreme Court here in Connecticut when there's a big case, when there's a lot of scrutiny. Um, And obviously, most of what we see is uh, you sitting on the bench, the seven of you sitting on the bench. So what happens after arguments? You guys go into another room and presumably take off your robes, right? Yes. Um, How it works is after oral argument, we leave the courtroom. There's a conference room um, in the back of the court. Mm -hmm. We go into conference and everything at the Supreme Court is done in order of seniority. The most junior justice speaks first. The chief speaks last. Um, There are some exceptions to that. Mm -hmm. There's there's times when I will let the junior justice off the hook and say, would you rather we all discussed it first? Mm -hmm. Um, But there's a bit of hazing at first. You kind of leave them out there and watch what happens. but when we start, we discuss the case, and one of the reasons why we have to do that, and we actually take a preliminary vote, and the mm-hmm. reason why we need to do that is the case has to be assigned to some chamber in order mm-hmm. for it to be written. So a, what you'll do is you'll figure out who the majority is, what their workload is, and then I'll assign the case to, to that chamber. Mm-hmm. Um, but that discussion, that preliminary discussion, the votes can change. Mm-hmm. Um, once that person writes the opinion, it's circulated. Yeah. Once it's circulated, everybody looks at it, and we have another meeting to decide uh, what the vote lineup is. Uh, there's sometimes where the case will flip, mm-hmm. uh, which means that the, a person who is going to dissent ends up with a majority, and that person writes it. Uh, there is a personal pleasure. We never express it openly, but mm. there's a personal pleasure in flipping a case. Mm. Um, when you say flipping a case, tell people what you mean by that. Um, it, let's say that four vote in favor of, of uh, of affirming and mm. three vote to reverse. Mm-hmm. After it's written, the person who writes the dissent mm. ends up getting more votes. Mm. And so it can go four, three, or five, two, the mm. way the dissenting justice was going to go. Yeah. Um, and so that means the case flipped. From and, and that was because of the persuasive powers uh, uh, of the argument written by the dissenting opinion writer? The persuasive powers, or sometimes the law, you know, mm. justice may have thought the law went one way, mm. and sometimes it's very difficult to figure exactly what the law is on something. Uh, so you could sit on the fence. Uh, for example, if you, when we're voting and you're quite not quite sure, we have, um, we'll say, well, I have a question mark on mm. that. And uh, sometimes it gets rather humorous because I have a large question mark. No, I have a tiny question mark. Mm. Um, so we 
we vary the size of our question marks lately. <laughs> okay. Um, so I want to go back to that first thing. So uh, the arguments conclude. You go into this deliberation room. And so this the junior most justice, I believe that's Justice Ecker right yes. now. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, he has to go first. And that is that is sort of a slightly a hazing thing, like just because he doesn't really – he hasn't taken the temperature of everybody else. It could be that he's one and the, the other six are completely in a different place. Mm-hmm. And that's just to sort of like, you know, test his convictions. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm joking by hazing. Actually, it's it's a very good way because I remember when I was the most junior justice, right. it's a very good way of getting that person to speak up. It, mm-hmm. It's kind of intimidating, especially if you, you're yeah. you, you're with people you've argued cases before. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that helps you get away from any kind of a personal bias you may have because of you you, know, you look at somebody and go, wow, wow, that's my hero. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have to speak first, then your voice is already out there. And and then is it does everybody just sort of speak in turn or does it turn into a back and forth a conversation will will that junior most justice ever speak again in the course of this or all of the above yeah. all of the above um, some cases are very hot just like some benches are hot a hot bench is when the the justices ask a lot of questions mm-hmm. um, the same thing can happen in in conference mm-hmm. um, the, the thing is it's a very very collaborative process. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that, too, because um, and this is probably something you can't say very much about. But it was clear at a certain point a few years ago, the composition of the court was a little bit different from what it is now. And anybody reading some of these opinions, reading certain footnotes of some of these opinions, (laughs) could tell that the court was hot in a different way. Uh, There was a sense in which the justices were not simply differing from one another, but were, in fact, at sometimes, you know, getting almost kind of personal in, in their uh, opposition to one another. And and I sense, I mean, s- some faces have changed and plus they're all probably afraid of you and your martial arts. It seems like I don't see that anymore. It doesn't seem to be happening anymore. I mean, is there, it's like, it's like a sports team with a clubhouse. I sense the clubhouse is a little bit more <laughs> unified these days. Well, every time you add a new personality to, to the court, mm. the, the court as a being changes. Yeah. It's, it's fascinating to watch. Um, and so there have been quite a few changes. But the thing I have to emphasize more than anything else is that you have people who very, very passionately take positions, mm-hmm. um, even though the court isn't as hot as it used to be. That's still happening. People are passionately taking positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all sat down and said, look, we have to be very careful how our public appearance is. We need people to understand that we can agree to mm-hmm. disagree. And that's basically where the court is right now. I'm hoping it's more than a honeymoon period, mm-hmm. um, but that's where we are. Right. And we say honeymoon period. I think it's important to emphasize because people don't follow this. The amount of turnover on this court, I, correct me if I'm wrong, I think six justices were appointed by Governor Malloy. And then oddly enough, the one who wasn't, Justice Palmer, was appointed by Governor Weicker, right? There's no Roland or Rel. It's just like six Malloy appointments and one Weicker appointment. So. Um, for the Supreme Court for, itself, yeah. yes. Yes, not counting the um, senior justices and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. But I was appointed originally, I was nominated originally by Governor Roland right. to the appellate court, Governor Rel. Yeah. To the Supreme Court. To the Supreme, that's, what I, that's what I mean. As right. Supreme Court justices, yeah. So, and, and there are quite a few very new faces. I mean, Justice Ecker may be the newest, but you know, within the last few years, right, about about three or four have come out of the court. Yes, um, I, uh, Justice McDonald went on a year before I did. Mm-hmm. Uh, Justice Palmer was on, of course, the longest period of time. He's a Weicker appointee. Um, but after Justice McDonald, there were rapid changes on the court. Mm-hmm. Um, I was one year, and I think Justice Dario was about three years after me, mm-hmm. um, then it was 
very rapid changes. Yeah. So that that is it, that's different. I. I, I want to ask a little bit more about something you were talking about earlier in this segment, and that is how cases get assigned. Because that's, first of all, you're the person who assigns cases, so that's a pretty significant thing. Um, and so, how how do you decide who who writes which opinion? How, how does I mean, is it simply based on what gets said during that oral deliberation, or I don't know, is there a certain justice who's going to handle most of the environmental ones or things like that? Yeah. Um, no, there's no select justice who will handle particular cases. How it works is that preliminary vote is in- incredibly important for that process. Mm-hmm. So what will happen is we'll look at the vote sheet. And let's say there's five issues. Um, you try to figure out which justices are on the most issues. Mm-hmm. And one member of that group will get to write the majority. Um other things I take into account when I assign cases are the workload is the workload of that particular chamber. Mm-hmm. So if they're working on something, let's say back in the in the days when there was a, a death penalty case, one of these really humongous mm-hmm. cases, that person may be working on that case uh, to the to the point that maybe giving them another case mm-hmm. wouldn't be a good thing. Mm-hmm. So trying to manage the time of, of all the justices goes into it, uh, trying to figure out who the majority is, who are the most people on one side. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are the kind of things that goes into it, not the personality of the justice or even the quote-unquote expertise of the justice. Is there an office culture there? And do you guys have like a Super Bowl pool, or I mean, I, I don't know how much. I, I, for all I know, you only see each other under certain very circumscribed situations, and the rest of the time, everybody's kind of writing and researching. I, I don't know. Is there sort of a, a is there an office culture? There is an office culture, and it's a, it's a rather collegial one. Um, I, I think the closest people are uh, probably the justices and their permanent clerks. We have one permanent mm-hmm. clerk and one term clerk. Uh, the other are our executive assistants are incredible. Um, they are the uh, the people like my executive assistant Elizabeth Hamill. Mm-hmm. I could not live without her. She knows what my schedule is. Um, she remembers my wife's name when I don't remember it. Um, all those things that I need to know, she knows. Don't say that you forget your wife's name. She has a higher uh, martial arts ranking than you. Yeah, right? but the, the reason why I can't remember her name is sparring. With oh, you her. got hit in the head so many times. <laughs> yeah, I guess you got an excuse. Uh, that works for me. So um, uh, I, I want to spend a little bit of time just talking about some of the substance of sort of organizational stuff that a court system has to deal with. And one of the struggles uh, for the Connecticut court system and for anybody who has any contact with the Connecticut court system, including, I have to tell you, journalists, is this heavy dissatisfaction with the family court system uh, and the guardian ad litem system. And obviously, people who wind up in family courts, they're already unhappy. Like, a lot of things went wrong if they got to family court. They couldn't work things out in any other way. Um, I know there's been reform uh, of some of the aspects of this, maybe especially the guardian ad litem system, which had become very controversial. Can you say a little bit about that, where you think that is right now? Yeah. I mean, if you're a journalist, I have to say, you get emails all the time from people who are still mad at the family court system, uh, and they're like long, and they have like files attached to them and stuff like that. But um, but I, I'm thinking there's some progress that's been made. There has been some progress, and and uh, I have to thank uh, Judge Bazzuto for making a lot of that happen. Um, but one of the issues is that it often takes a time for uh, people's perspectives or people's thoughts to catch up to the reality of the mm-hmm. changes that were made. And so we've made significant changes, and I think that we don't do a good enough job saying what those changes were and why they're making a difference in Here's people's your lives. Um, and so it, it, I, I wish Judge Bazzuto was here to actually yeah. go over all those changes. 
but we made tremendous changes. We saw we had a problem with the guardian ad litem system. And that was a system that people were really angry with. Right. Um, because it was, first of all, they're paying for the guardian ad litem, right? They're, absolutely. Maybe you should just give us 45 second just expl- explanation of what okay. that term is. A guardian ad litem is a person who steps in and will uh, basically watch the interest, best interests of the children. And mm-hmm. when you have a divorce and you have people who are in conflict, Sometimes the court needs help mm-hmm. um, because the judge can't go out there and do those things and collect that data that that we need to have access to. So we appoint a guardian ad litem. The guardian ad litem is paid for by either one or both of the parties. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it can be somewhat expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, hiring a professional always is expensive. Um, the more conflict you have, the more hours that go up. And you have a situation where both people feel that they're right, mm-hmm. um, and the, the court is in the middle of that. Um, could we have handled that better? There is always room for improvement, and I, I think that we've made that improvement now. So you're going to see less uh, situations where guardian items are appointed. We looked at the, the people we were appointing as guardian items, and we adjusted those things. So, so there isn't like a favoritism system, and, and people have a choice of 15 different ones or something. Now, there, right? there, yeah. It's a much better system than it was. Yeah, mm. and, and, and adding family relations counselors to this, right? I mean, yes. ultimately, uh, the court system, oddly enough, is really not a good place to try to resolve a lot of this stuff. I mean, if you can resolve it any other way, it's going to be less expensive and less acrimonious. I assume that's part of reform, too. Like, how do we get you guys talking to one another right. in a different and, way? Right. And we're even, wherever we can think out of the box, we, we do that, too. Judicial understands this premise, and that is that people, we only have the power that people give us. Mm-hmm. And and I, I think that's incredibly important because we don't have an army, we don't have a police force, we don't have any of those things. We rely on people trusting us enough for when we do something that they're going to follow the rule of law. That's why it's incredibly important that we follow the rule of law even when we don't like where it takes us. Mm -hmm. I think there's some fall off when some people feel that they were wronged by the decision even though it may be technically right or legally right. But that's where the judge has to go. And so we need to educate people more about what our role is and what their role is. And we're making a great effort to do that. Um, uh, one of the places this can turn up, Superior Court judges are up every eight years for reconfirmation. Is that a good process? I mean, you know, I always feel like we have a better process, certainly than states where they elect judges and stuff like that. But yeah, I think our system is the best. Mm-hmm. But as I said earlier about judicial, the process can always use some improvement. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that our judges do their best to follow the rule of law, and they make some very controversial decisions. Um, In in talking from my fellow judges, I don't think your job should be on the line because you made the best efforts you possibly could and made a decision that was unpopular. Mm -hmm. Your job shouldn't be threatened if that happens. Right. That's that's been a problem that I've had, that um, in recent years, the reconfirmation process it seems like I would understand if some really aberrant behavior uh, had entered into the judge's conduct or if the conduct the judge has been saying strange things or inappropriate things in court. Or I mean, I can imagine a m- number of behavioral things or actual problems that might need to come up at a reconfirmation hearing. But it seems to me like I don't like the way you decided five cases. I don't think that's the way it's supposed to work. And it has been working that way a little bit. But there's evidence of, of the other side, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to talk about my own appointment process. There were several people who got up, in, including people who recommended my name to the governor, mm-hmm. who got up and said, I don't like some of your decisions, 
but mm-hmm. I think that you followed what you felt the law was. And so there is, there's hope out there, and, and I, I like seeing that, and I'm glad that they said that at a public hearing because it gets, the, it helps the people understand what the role is of the legislature vis-a-vis the, the judicial branch. All right, we're going to take a quick break here, uh, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk uh, a little bit more substance uh, here with uh, Chief Justice Richard Robinson, so stay with us. And we'll superintend the wedding celebration In a manner official and judicial One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight Supreme Court judges Look what I've got here. The bearer of this piece of paper, Kion Wolf, is a trusted associate of mine. If she has done something wrong, please know that she has done so with my approval and for the greater good of Connecticut. Richard Robinson, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. Now if I could just get him to sign it. Today's show was produced by Associate Justice Scott Breedy and me, Kion Wolf. Our bailiff was Amanda Fish. The part of Bill Curry was played by Alan Page. On tomorrow's show, the nose tackles Roma, one of this year's Oscar favorites. And now. Back to Colin. I'd appreciate if he would dress me as Colonel or Sir. I believe I've earned it. Defense counsel will address the witness as Colonel or Sir. I don't know what the hell kind of unit you're running here. And the witness will address this court as Judge or Your Honor. I'm quite certain I've earned it. All right, that's a judge being really cool. You got to be like that, all right? <laughs> that should be your total model. Uh, I'm here with Richard Robinson. He's the Chief Justice of the Connecticut Supreme Court. We made him speak in Middle English. We made him open a jar of uh, sun-dried tomatoes. I don't know what else we can make him do at this point. So I think we might actually have to talk about real things. So uh, the judicial branch, as you were saying before we went on the air, it's the smallest branch of government. By It is a very small branch of government. And it has uh, felt... Uh, the acts of budget cutting pretty severely. There's been extreme downsizing. 2016, I think, in particular, was um, a pretty tough year in terms of cuts. So that can't possibly make you or anybody else in the branch happy. It it doesn't. Um, We fully understand that the state has a fiscal crisis, but we also understand that the judicial branch has to function properly. We're now operating with about $61 million less in our budget than we had before and about 430 fewer employees. Mm -hmm. And, of course, that directly impacts on how we operate. Mm -hmm. Our branch, unlike other uh, judicial branches throughout the the nation, we have a lot of what I call non-core functions. Um, For example, the juvenile justice piece that we just inherited from DCF. we're glad to do it, and mm-hmm. we will do it to the best of our ability. And I think one of the things that happens is the legislature and the executive branch assigns them to us because we're very good at, at executing on, on things. Um, that being said, money is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, we also have – we're trying to work on issues concerning security, getting more judicial marshals. Mm-hmm. Um, we would love to have more. You've probably heard of some of the recent events at courthouses. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can always use more people to make the courthouses more secure. I, I haven't followed this as closely as I probably should have, but my sense is that, I mean, when you, first of all, when you lose non-judge staff, you're essentially eventually losing judges because they, you don't have the support function that judges need. So are there actually fewer functioning judges in Connecticut now because of this? Um, we actually had an increase in judges um, <laughs> recently, 31 new judges. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you add on 31 new judges, you need to add on support staff to support right. those judges. 
Um, if we have that support staff, we have adequate support staff, then we can do more cases. I mean, mm-hmm. the, the math is really simple there. Um, but we do need dollars mm-hmm. to make sure that happens. And uh, of course, I'm concerned, and the Chief Court Administrator Pat Carroll is concerned about this upcoming uh, budget session because we're very worried about making sure that we have adequate funds to do not only our core functions, but our non-core functions. Yeah, and even the core functions, it seems to me that, um, you know, you don't want to be closing locations or anything like that because particularly, I mean, that hits a a poorer defendant or poorer participant in any kind of case harder if they have to travel long distances or obviously if there's things take a long time. And, you know, we talked about guardian ad litem. There's a lot of ways people in the pipeline can accumulate costs and you want things to be streamlined. Right. Um, One of the unintended consequences of like closing down a courthouse would be, let's say you're a defendant and you're charged with a misdemeanor and you have to come back a few times and then you miss a court date. You're usually given a bail commissioner letter or even two bail commissioner's letters. The letter goes out to you, says you missed a court date. Here's your new court date. If that person eventually ends up with a failure to appear, then they now have a very serious crime. And sometimes I've even seen where the person will plead out, the misdemeanor will be nollied, and they'll be taken on the on the, uh, the failure to appear. So we have to avoid situations like that. And the branch is actually working on a number of different initiatives to help. Um, I don't know if you know about we're doing things like the Centralized Infraction Bureau. You can yeah. now contest your ticket mm. online. Mm-hmm. And what happens is a prosecutor will be on the other end, a state's attorney will be on the other end, and try to work something out, whether it's a compromise or a nolly or something of that nature. That way, the state's attorneys are freed up to take care of the, the more serious issues, the misdemeanors, the violent crimes, the felonies. So they love it. We love it. And it's a use of technology that I think benefits the public. And we're trying to get better at using technology in ways that um, benefits the public. Was that online disposition program, was it um, a a positive consequence of budget cutting or is it just something that you thought, that the branch thought really just made sense to do? Uh, It it probably is both. It makes a lot of sense to do it. And we realize, and it probably the the budget issue accelerates the issue. We realize that we have to get better at using technology um, because we're going to have less people. Um, we also realize there's an issue when someone has to make contact with the branch. The more times that they make the contact, the more upset they're going to be. Mm-hmm. You have to take off a day from work. If you're living from paycheck to paycheck, that's definitely not a good thing. Mm-hmm. So we have to figure out ways to serve the public uh, in a better way. You know, it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I should say, too, uh, one of the things I, I sense about you is that you're an innately curious person. And I should say that today we're doing our show in the format that we invented, which we call Radio for the Deaf. We have two wonderful interpreters. For some reason or other, this time they're not right in the same room with us, but um, they are JK and Maria, I think, uh, in one of the other rooms. And so this show, the conversation that I'm having with Chief Justice Robinson is being interpreted simultaneously in American Sign Language. Uh, and uh, that is being beamed over to uh, our Facebook page, the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. When we create a post at WNPR.org, it will also be uh, embedded there, the video. Of this. So if you know of a person, uh, and I think there might be some people who are in the deaf community and obviously therefore do not experience radio shows ordinarily, but might inter- be interested to hear what the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court has to say about stuff. This is just a great opportunity. Please guide them over to that. If you can't find it, get in touch with one of us, with me or one of my producers, and we'll uh, we'll help you do that. But I noticed I brought you in to talk to the interpreters, and you had a bunch of questions 
for them too. You seem like kind of a learner. Like you want to, you meet somebody, you want to know something more than you went in knowing. Oh, I get that from my dad. Mm-hmm. My dad was incredibly curious about things. One of the smartest people I ever met. Didn't have much of a formal education, but mm-hmm. he was actually one of the most intelligent people I've ever met. The question I was asking the interpreters was about relay interpreters. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that judicial does, and, and this is thanks to Chief Justice Chase Rogers, uh, the Chief Justice before me, mm-hmm. is we're working on access to justice. And that means a lot of things. It means physical access, mm-hmm. for example, on the ADA type of issues. It means language access um, if you are limited English proficient. We spend close to $3 million on interpreters outside of our interpreter employees. Mm-hmm. And when I talk to uh, other Supreme Court justices, chief justices around the country, they're amazed at what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's worth every dollar because think about this. You walk into a courtroom, you hear things being done in English. You can speak English to a good degree, but when mm-hmm. it comes to really complex things, you think in your native language or you revert to your native language. So you may be able to do something like a, a continuance and understand that and won't need an interpreter. Mm. But if you're pleading, you might need somebody to help you with that. Other courts um, have not provided the assistance that we provide. As I said, it's expensive. But if you're going to have true access to justice, you need to do it. So with the sign language interpreters, I was asking about relay interpreters. Mm-hmm. Um, when we think of sign language, we tend to think of American uh, sign language. Mm-hmm. There's other kinds, uh, including some homegrown ones. So you might need a person who understands that language, who signs in that language, but also understands American sign language. So you'll have an interpreter interpret from the first language into the second language. Mm. And it's fascinating to watch them do it. And mm-hmm. they're, they're so good at it, but it's got to be emotionally and physically draining um, for them to do it. So I'm always fascinated by that. You know, when you say that thing, and you say the thing about pleading too, I, I'm suddenly thinking that um, I, I, if you look at courts around the country, I, I don't know this to be true, but I w- wouldn't be surprised if there was sort of a structural bias against pro se defendants um, that, you know, even though it's never written anywhere that you have to go get a lawyer, the system probably is built to work better with people being represented. But you want to build a system that works for the pro se litigant, right? Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because it, it is a, a problem for us. It's much better. Think about it this way. If you have two people who are well-versed in the law arguing a point of law, mm-hmm. it makes it easier for the court. Mm-hmm. If you have one person who's well-versed and the other one who isn't, it's really tough. Yeah. And so we need to get better at uh, having voices for those people. Mm. And it's not just pro bono. Um, There's this issue that we call low bono. Mm. That's the person who has enough money where they own a house, but it may be mortgaged Mm. and and no equity in it, or own a car but have sky-high car notes. So technically, they're not entitled to pro bono services, Mm -hmm. but they need help. And so we're working uh, with the Connecticut Bar Association to try to figure out ways to help those folks. Some of it's unbundling of services. So you can have a lawyer do one particular thing and Mm -hmm. then get right out of the case. Before, if a lawyer got in the case, they could only get out with the court's permission. Mm -hmm. And the court was leery about letting them out because, quite frankly, you had a person, as I said, well-versed in the law who could Mm -hmm. make 
the judge's life a lot easier. Right. So very quickly, we're almost out of time. Uh, cameras in the courtroom, is anything going to change? I, I don't, maybe you should quickly describe what the policy on cameras in the courtroom um, is first. The cameras in the courtroom will be the norm. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, it, it's, it's almost all the time. The branch's position on those kinds of things now, initially, we resisted. We didn't know what we were getting into. We mm-hmm. thought it would change the, the proceedings. However, we're at a point now where we're going for complete transparency. Mm-hmm. We're, we're doing things like if you want an audio of a Supreme Court argument, we will release the audio that day. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Superior Court, we are going to start selling the audios. Um, so if a person is doesn't have that much money, transcripts are extremely expensive. Mm-hmm maybe an audio of the proceeding will help them better. So we are looking at being open to the public. We honestly feel that um, the most transparency we, the more transparency we get, the more people will feel that they're being treated fairly. Um, we are working with the press. We have a media committee mm-hmm. that works very well. And so our goal, quite frankly, is to be as open as we possibly can. And uh, I thank you for even this interview today because that helps. Right. Well, I think it goes back to what you're saying before, which is if people understand the system and know the system and and have some sense of how it works, they're going to trust the system more. They're not going to have this sense that the system's out there to screw them. Agreed. All right. All right. Well, we're going to stop there, I think. I, I want to do a special thanks. I mean, I'm always grateful to uh, all of my producers, and they're all terrific. And Scott Breedy is the – he's like the uh, Justice Ecker of our staff. He's the <laughs> new guy. And, uh, but he just did an amazing job of this, and it's one of the reasons that I'm as well-prepared as I am. Uh, and Scott's been digging around and watching Richard Robinson's speeches and stuff like that. So uh, uh, that's been great. And you've been great, too, uh, Chief Justice uh, Richard A. Robinson. So it's so nice of you to come in and take the time to have this conversation. Thanks for having me. And to make you feel at home, we're going to play the Doobie Brothers on the way out. Excellent. Excellent.